Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Oh, Coming to you live, on tape, from the penthouse of a partially completed commercial high-rise in glamorous Hollywood adjacent California, from the studios of Sirius XM West, boasting an obstructed view of LA's leading cement factory, this is The Tully Show, I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, a man you can hear every weekday on The Jason Ellis Show here on Sirius XM. You can also see him periodically on stand-up stages in front of sparse crowds. Yeah, I couldn't get a guest. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the show. We are we are in the dog days of summer, and not a lot of people are around. I have a lot of comedians on the show here, but there aren't uh, a whole lot of those around. Our friend Jesse Mae Peluso, the people's champ, and many others of her ilk have uh, made for Montreal, which is where the Just for Laughs Festival is happening. So um, I came up dry. I could have taken the show off. I've doubled up and done two shows a week a couple times, at least once recently. Um, But I did want to do that because I tried just doing a show solo the one time and I thought that came out okay and people seemed to like that okay. I did uh, half a show by myself. And uh, particularly because I had something I actually really wanted to talk about, and that is, frankly, a magazine that I bought from 1979. So that's what the show's about today. Instead of a guest, I have got, <laughs> I've got a, a 40-year-old heavy metal magazine. We'll get to that in a second. Real quick, before I tell you about that and something else, um, I want to just say thank you to everybody who listens to this show and gives feedback and rates and reviews and subscribes and all that. And I wanted to talk about something real quick. People ask me pretty frequently if if I care because this show can be heard on SiriusXM on Faction Talk and can be listened to on demand and can be downloaded as a podcast. And I'm sure there are people listening to this all three ways. And people want to know, they want to support me and support the show. And they say, what's the most helpful way? to me for them to listen to it. And I thank you for, you know, being considerate enough to think of it that way. Frankly, the answer is I'm not sure anyway makes any difference. I don't really care. Do you do whatever um, makes sense for your life? But if you do want to help out the show, there is a way that you can do it. Just if you like a guest on the show, I'm not asking anybody to lie, but if somebody comes by and you enjoy hearing them on the show, just go on social media, go on their social media and tag them in posts and let them know that um, that you liked hearing them and that you'd like to hear them again and um, you know maybe even go one further than that and check out the stuff that they do on their own. Gareth Reynolds, I'm sure many people who have uh, heard him on the show are familiar with his podcast that he does with Dave Anthony, uh, The Dollop. Both of those guys have been on the show as well. I know a lot of you listen to that as well because whenever I ask people what guests I should get, his name comes up all the time. But if you haven't checked out The Dollop, it's a great podcast. Check it out. Let them know you're listening to it because you've heard him here. And even if you want to go a step further than that, you know, go see Gareth. He's out on tour a lot this summer. Jesse May is, I mean, I think she's gone for like three months. So wherever you live, there's a pretty good chance Jesse May Peluso is coming somewhere near you. Go see him live and uh, tell him the Tully Show sent you. And I'd appreciate you doing that. You won't regret it, obviously. I try my best to have people on the show that I think are entertaining and that I think you would also find entertaining. So if you want to support the show, that's a cool way to do it. Thank you. Okay, so here's the deal. 
magazines. I've actually got two to three magazines that I want to talk at you about this week. Um, the first is it's Circus Magazine. Maybe some people remember Circus Magazine. Circus Magazine was a really big part of my like adolescence. I had a cousin who was, um, I guess, into like hair metal before it was really hair metal. She loved Van Halen is basically what it comes down to. And she did something that like 10-year-old me thought was the coolest thing ever. She used to buy metal magazines and she would cut the pictures out of them. Sometimes it was a poster, sometimes it was just a little picture. And she just literally wallpapered her walls with pictures of, I think it was mostly, if not all, Van Halen. And she even got up to her ceiling. And I just thought that was the most badass thing ever. I can remember she had the iconic David Lee Roth poster where David Lee, looking like a young like lion with a receding hairline, is staring at himself in the mirror backstage, getting ready to go out there and do some splits and go, oh, while everybody's just trying to listen to Eddie Van Halen take a guitar solo all night. And he's got the, well, I want to say assless chaps, but little known fact, chaps are by definition assless. So he's just wearing chaps. And tastefully in the shadows, there's, uh, there's David Lee's ass. That iconic poster, she had that. I don't even think there was room for that on my cousin, uh, on my cousin's wall. I think that may have been up on the ceiling. I remember she would even cut stuff out of heavy metal magazines so small that it would just be a little quote. I remember, like, in it wasn't even a headline, just print from one story from one magazine. She had taken the trouble to snip out and scotch tape up the phrase, David Lee Roth is mint. And to me, like, is there a more. Is there a, is there a, a five-word sentence that can be more 80s than David Lee Roth is mint? So anyway, I thought that was cool. And then a couple years later, Motley Crue put out Dr. Feelgood, and I thought that was the greatest thing ever. And I got a guitar, and I started obsessively buying Circus Magazine and Rip Magazine, and Metal Edge was another one. And uh, Mark McGrath, come to think of it, if I'm not imagining this, when he was on the show, by all means, by the way, support Mark McGrath's stuff. Sugar Ray has a, has a new album out, and they've got a bunch of summer tour dates. He mentioned, I think, wanting to get his hands on some old hair metal magazines just to see what they were like, you know, going back in time, because they are these crazy little time capsules. And so, with all that in mind, the other day, I'm on Melrose Avenue here in L.A., on my way into work, and I go to get a coffee, and getting a coffee nowadays, at least where we are, is not the same as it used to be. I used to work in coffee shops. Somebody ordered coffee. I went over. I pulled the little lever. Coffee came out. I gave it to them. They paid. They left. Nowadays, when you get a coffee, the guy's like, cool, that'll be, you know, $7. And he puts on like lab goggles and gets out a Bunsen burner and tells you to come back in 15 minutes. So I don't know what this coffee scientist is doing, but I've got some time to kill. And it turns out there's this pretty sick like vinyl store next door. And I've been in there once or twice. So classic. It's just all used, and the guys in there are just total burnouts and total dicks. And as I'm the one time I went there before this, I'm flipping through like a stack of metal because I'm a customer and I like that stuff. And there's a decent outside chance I might buy something. And the guy is like, make sure you put everything back the way it is uh, right now when you leave. And then as soon as I walked away from that one and started looking at another one, he came over and I did. I put the shit back the way I think it had been. But he came over and touched up my work just to let me know that I was completely unwelcome in his place of business that stays in business by selling things to people like me. So anyway, I'm a glutton for punishment. So I went back because I thought that place was awesome. 
and I didn't find any hair metal vinyl that I wanted to buy this time while I'm waiting for my coffee, and I'm on my way out the door, and I notice that they have this box of old hair metal magazines. This copy that I am looking at belongs to a gentleman, or belonged to a gentleman named Rick Lombardo, who received this in the mail, um, Circus Magazine, on, I can't, over Bun E. Carlos's hair of Cheap Trick, they're on the cover, can't make out the date, but it's November of 1979 and I'm like that's cool and I bring it home and I start flipping through it and it's actually quite a bit more interesting than I expected it to be and uh, I want to talk to you about what's inside (laughs) this circus magazine and meanwhile uh, as you may or may not have heard Mad Magazine has closed its doors forever which is very surprising to anybody who thought you know who didn't know that Mad Magazine was still in business I actually saw a copy of mad at a newsstand um no at a grocery store checkout line like six months ago and it blew my mind that it was still in production i think it may have been this one last gasp maybe there were new owners but mad is officially dead and i i did a little research before i talked to you about it and the people who run it are like it's a victim of pc culture um maybe that's true i think it's probably more a victim of the fact that it was maybe never funny at all but I wasn't sure if, because I remember reading it and being like, yeah, you know, when you're, you start reading Mad when you're like, you know, 11, 12 years old and you, you're reading it, it's kind of aspirational reading. It's funny to say that about fucking Alfred E. Newman, but it is. The jokes are aimed a little bit over your head. You know, they're a little bit more for people who actually have like full on pubic hair and stuff like that. And you're like, hey, yeah, that's totally funny. I get it. And I thought I would take a look back and see if um, with the hindsight of um of being an adult if if mad has gotten any better with time and i went to this cool bookstore will pendarvis gave me a uh, people who listen to the jason ellis show know will will gave me a gift certificate to this cool used bookstore and it turns out it's like the only place in la that i was able to find old copies of mad magazine and i and i managed to get like an a copy that is was released within two months of when this circus magazine is so this is what i have that i want to talk to you about today I have a time capsule of 1979 viewed solely through the lens of Mad Magazine and Circus Magazine. I don't know that there's all that much to be said about the Mad when it comes down to it. I thought that was going to carry this uh, monologue that I have for you today, but flipping through it, it, it's not much better than I expected it to be. But let's take a look at what's inside here. The uh, So I have two issues of it. One is from September of 79, the one that I found slightly more interesting, slightly more relevant is the one from 1978. September of 1978, the cover has Alfred E. Newman as John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever. So I'm wondering, like, what is the joke? Well, so first of all, there's the letters to the editor. This is a a thing that they did in, I think, a lot of magazines, maybe most magazines back then, where they have these completely bogus... um, I, I... there's no way that these are real letters. Basically, these guys would sit there and write dumb letters to themselves where they would use words like black and barf, and then they would answer their own letters. And that's how that started. Uh, that's how every magazine episode of issue, rather, of Mad Magazine started, and Circus Magazine, for that matter. So we get into uh, Saturday Night Feeble is the best they were able to do with Saturday Night Fever. I noticed going back... Mad Magazine, in many ways, was a victim of the fact that everything had to be 
um, like a, a pun. And they tried very hard to be pretty close to the original wording. And sometimes there's just not a joke there. And this was pretty much the case. And there, there really wasn't a joke there at all that they were able to find to, to find to be made about Saturday Night Fever in general. As far as I can tell, the big joke is that there is quite a lot of music involved in Saturday Night Fever. And the editors of Mad suspected that the movie was really just there to sell copies of the soundtrack. So that was the that was the big joke that they had come up with that it's their cover story and they had aimed that at their 11-year-old readership and I'm looking back and I'm going yeah this is about the shit that I remember uh this is not this is not good this is this has maybe never been good and I started to come to that conclusion and I so I did a little bit more homework on Mad Magazine and it turns out there is one thing and maybe you disagree maybe you think Mad is hilarious but it turns out that there is it did serve a vital role. Um, it uh, Apparently when Mad Magazine came out in the 1950s, it really was one of the very, very, very first subversive things that was in the mainstream. And I always kind of say this about the 1990s. I feel like, I wish I could think of a really good example of it, but I feel like in, in the 1990s is when it became very cool in um, maybe like, stand-up comedy to start going back to like sitcoms from the 70s and 80s and start picking it apart and going, did you ever notice that blah, blah, blah did not make any sense? What was the deal with that? And it was really like funny in a, in a, in a satisfying, cathartic way to thinking people because you'd go, oh my God, I always thought that or me and my friends always made that joke. We thought that we were the only ones who were aware of how bullshit, sorry, I don't have a good example for this is, but I think you know what I'm talking about. And it turns out that's what Mad was doing all the way back in the 1950s is you had this big, mass, um, you know, shiny, happy, commercialized vision of society that was being projected to you pretty literally by your TV. And everyone was supposed to go along with it. And many people do. Of course, mass culture exists. Mass society exists because most people, it, it works well in a form that they choose to participate in it. But there's always going to be the outsiders, the, you know, the cool kids, 10, 20 percent of us who are going, this is nonsense. And it's fucking infuriating that nobody else notices that but me, because maybe in your small town, you don't have the Internet. Maybe you have a buddy or two. Maybe you don't. You're like the only ones and you feel like, am I crazy? This is complete nonsense what we're looking at here. And I gather from some very respectable people who uh, grew up reading Mad in the 50s and then you know came to prominence later on and, and talked about it later on. It was that first thing that made you say wherever you were, okay, this is good. This is powerful. I'm not alone. There's there's somebody else out there who sees that this is nonsense. I think it's true. It was like kind of like a looking through the matrix thing. So I don't even know if Mad Magazine was funny in the 1950s, but I get what it, the powerful, important role that it played. How that allowed Mad Magazine to survive for ooh, on and off 60 years. Like it's been pretty dead for a while, right? But the heyday was still going. I feel like young dirtbags like myself read Mad Magazine into the 90s. That's a solid 40-year run. They may have just been coasting on on the importance of their early uh, issues or something, um, but it wasn't very good. It was still better than Cracked. Anyway, I got... Uh, 
I tend to drink a lot when I'm on the radio. I think it's because I know it's because um, I used to smoke and it's like an oral fixation. And here's a little behind the scenes pulling back the curtain thing when pretty much every time somebody is talking when they're on the show, I'm drinking seltzer. But I, I have not been able to have a sip of seltzer for 16 minutes and it was driving me crazy. So there we go. Um, so I'm, I'm looking at this Mad Magazine. And there's Saturday Night Fever, and there's, I mean, just all of the things that you remember were, it's exactly the way you remember it. I don't know that it changed for 30 years. And when I say that, I mean, very specifically, I think they had like the same three artists and two writers the entire time. And it was literally 10 pages of, oh, yeah, there's those guys. And then there's two pages of their spy versus spy. And then you get to um, the lighter side of... That's Dave Dave Berg. I remember that name. The artist and writer. The lighter side of Summer Problems. There's a tennis elbow jerk joke in there. Did people play a lot more el- uh, tennis in the 1970s or were their elbow ligaments significantly weaker? Because I don't feel like that was like their generation's carpal tunnel. And I know why we all have carpal tunnel is because we're constantly using our, our fingers and our wrists for keyboards and phones. But were people playing as much tennis as we are on uh, on our phone nowadays? Um, in the lighter side of, I'll spare you all of these jokes. One consistent thing, and I guess it's not too surprising, is that pretty much every guy in Mad Magazine, drawn in Mad Magazine, is either some sort of teenish, pimply teenish kind of guy, or it's uh, a guy who's like, kind of built and good looking but he's an object of ridicule like uh, John Travolta in the Saturday Night Feeble gets like an extra long chin or something like that and every woman is either like you (laughs) you wonder uh, how worked up the guy drawing the thing might have gotten at the time that he was making it they're either very 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 sexualized or they're very much not that they're old or they're fat or they're or they're flat chested and these are like the stock characters of mad magazine which i guess makes sense if you're talking to a bunch of uh of 12 year old boys that's pretty much how they see the world the one thing that i noticed is because i flipped through a couple different episodes before i uh issues before i settled on this one is that they literally use the same characters over and over in the lighter side of, which is, oh, delightful jokes about how, I don't know, fat people look in uh, bikinis and stuff like that. There's the guy, and I almost feel like you'd recognize the guy if you saw the drawing. He's the old guy who's got a pipe in his mouth, and he's got, like, the blue blazer and the khaki pants, and most importantly, he's got the sailor hat. Like he's got the the captain hat. Like uh, I'm pretty sure Ted Knight in Caddyshack would be the ultimate prototype of this guy. What was that? When exactly did it become understood that if you were a man of a certain age and of certain distinction that you could flash that to people the same way we do with watches or jewelry or whatever by being a pretend admiral. Because that was a thing that started at some point before my time, and it ended at some point, mercifully, but for they had a good long run. Jackie Gleason in the toy, you know, like to flex by pretending he could potentially step on a boat and be in charge of it. There's a lot of things that we do with nautical clothes, I notice, nautical themes, when it comes to 
trying to make older people impressive. I guess this isn't so much a thing anymore, but there was also a good long run where um, older women, uh, you know, matronly sorts of women, would they'd get the shoulder pads and and then they would kind of dress like glorified, like village people versions of Navy uh, officers. You either know what I'm talking about or you don't know what I'm talking about. But I swear to God, I have seen like 65-year-old ladies at functions, at buffets, more on buffets in a minute, by the way, with like epaulets. Anyway, neither here nor there. We're back into Mad Magazine. Frankly, like I said, there's not a whole, whole lot to... uh, to really discuss, and yet here we are, 20 minutes, 20 minutes into um, discussing it. I know there was one or two more things I wanted to touch on in here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, the buffet thing. There's just a really bad thing about Mad Magazine goes to a buffet supper, and guess what? The food is not very good, and yeah, that's, that seems to be the joke. Do you recall... No, I really enjoyed Harris Cattleman being on the show. Was he on last week, week before? I can't remember. Um... The, the guy, he used to run 20th Century Fox TV and just had this long, legendary career. I enjoy that. I've gotten a lot of good feedback. I wasn't sure what people were going to think about that, but it seems like you guys dug it. Now, his book is um, it, it's astounding. Like, in the space of four or five pages, just legendary thing after legendary thing happens, and not just rubbing shoulders with... Hollywood, you know, royalty, but also him just being involved in these almost unbelievable situations to the extent that I, I my wife got her hands on it at one point and was like, is this guy, is he serious about this? And I was like, yeah, I mean, I don't have any way of verifying all this. And I did, if you recall, open that conversation with him by saying, if half of this is true, Harris Cattleman, and he's like, oh, it's all true. And frankly, I get the impression, well, I know, it goes with almost without saying, there's quite a lot of shit that got left on the cutting room floor. I, I think um, there's a whole other book to be written about his his social and romantic exploits that I think he's just too uh, too classy of a dude to write. But I will. I'm going to go ahead and call bullshit on one thing. Maybe Harris Cattleman did not know that he was speaking what I think is would widely be considered an untruth when he claimed in his book and um, and uh, reaffirmed right here on the Tully Show that his cousin who was like a pretty mobbed up dude who ran a casino in Las Vegas, that his cousin invented the buffet. Um, I saw this thing in Mad Magazine and it reminded me of that. And I looked it up and sadly, there is another guy, another Vegas guy, his last name was McDonald, I believe, who is generally considered the first person to do that in a casino. So, um, you know, unfortunately, it casts aspersions on your entire book when you make a wild claim like uh like that your cousin created the buffet it's like when dr evil in austin powers said that his father would make outrageous claims like what he invented the question mark or something like that um here we go uh the last thing in in mad magazine from this is the september 78 issue that i'm looking at here is eight is too rough now, I don't know, Saturday Night Fever, this is a thing that continues to resonate through the culture. I could still see, like, Stuart Little getting out there and doing the hustle in a white jacket and suit with black shirt underneath it. Eight is enough, largely forgotten. Me and my family ate up all this shit. Just like I said to Harris Cattleman when he was here, it's funny that he was constantly fighting to keep Mr. Belvedere 
on the air when everybody behind the scenes thought that it was just worthless trash. And he's like, yeah, it is, but it makes money. That was like destination viewing in my household. A lot of things where I probably seen every single episode of it is enough. And like many shows that I consumed constantly in my youth, I don't remember ever enjoying it. We just did that, right? My kid is so goddamn spoilable, and my daughter will be when she has a, a little bit more of a brain. Um, he constantly gets to watch things that he enjoys because everything is on demand. He has never known what it's like to sit there and go, okay, that's worse than MASH. That's even worse than MASH. Is this? Yeah, okay, we're watching MASH and getting so used to it that he doesn't even bother flipping the channels anymore. He just knows 530 Right before dinner's ready, every weeknight, he'll never know a world where you have to watch things like Eight is Enough, which was the Dick Van Patten vehicle. He's got a lot of children. And this is a thing that comes up that, you know, one of the things that's very interesting, obviously, about looking back at old magazines is they are, they were disposable of their nature. They were of their moment, and it's very... Very strange that someone like me would still be buying copies of them 40 years later, much less, excuse me, talking about them on the radio. But it goes without saying that we live in a time of tremendous social upheaval. And even if we didn't, the world's just always changing. And shit that was normal or that flew in 1979 is not necessarily going to fly now. Um, the eight is enough thing is like, it's crazy how sexualized things were once again there's a certain dude i think it's a very small number of dudes who made mad magazine for a um a very long period of time and i do not think that i would enjoy hanging out in their office because i do think that they were like somebody who never outgrew mad magazine just sitting there making mad magazine and 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 they're making it for kids that are, you know, adolescent and coming into their own sexually. And so this stuff is incredibly sexualized. I don't know if you remember uh, the little kid on Eight is Enough. His name was Nicholas. I don't know how I remember that. In this, he is, uh, he's Nicholas. <laughs> because like I said, absolutely everything in Mad Magazine has to be a pun. And I mean, that was pretty much the only word that rhymed. So he's Nicholas. And one of the earliest jokes in this is uh, him asking his dad if kids his age can have babies, and when his dad says no, he says, good, I'm going to run next door and tell the neighbor she's got nothing to worry about. So there's a joke about, uh, I would guess that Nicholas slash Nicholas, if memory serves, is about seven or eight years old. Um, by the end of this issue, um, we're talking about swinging we're talking about uh oh this is interesting his friend is not getting um along with his wife and so dick van patten recommends that he um that he move out and and teach her a lesson and again who cares that's just something that maybe that was a thing that people thought would work back then nowadays i kind of feel like when uh when you move out and you move in with <laughs> Dick Van Patten and his eight children, you can pretty much start drawing up the um, the divorce papers a different time. So that's the end of Mad. It kind of sucks. And uh, R.I.P. Mad, nonetheless. You were there. You did it. Everybody remembers you. You're legendary. Nobody has ever done in 40 years the Mad Folding on the end here. So I'm going to do it right now. Here goes the street value of this. And it goes from being a butterfly to... I think that's Elvis.
All right. Thank you, Mad Magazine. Okay. Moving on. You are listening, if you are still listening, to the uh, to the Tully show. And I got this Circus Magazine, and my God, did I find this entertaining. Um, I've not really left myself enough time to talk about it, but let me get to the highlights. So, on the cover, Cheap Trick. Um, uh, Tusk. Is this Fleetwood Mac's risk? I mean, there's so much stuff. I, when we talk about classic rock, it's always about the late 60s. And I think this is, I'm sorry, I know I'm going in tangent on top of tangent, but I don't, like, I always make fun of classic rock, and I'm just trying to not play devil's advocate. I just feel like it's, um, they they weren't gods. They made great music, and they also made some bad music. Every era has good and bad things. Every band had their bad days, and I feel like I would never claim that uh, Cheap Trick are better than the Beatles or something, but I just feel like, you know, they're all bands. They're all, they all had their era, and there's things that kind of kick ass about all of their, of their eras, and it's amazing to just find yourself in the middle of where things weren't set in stone. That's legendary. That's the unforgettable, unimpeachable, like Tusk, you know, Fleetwood Mac has made rumors at this point. It is and remains one of the great, most successful albums of all time. And now they're making Tusk. And Circus Magazine's like, yeah, 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 they kind of blew it. You know, this is like reading a review of the album after Melancholy from the Smashing Pumpkins or, or for that matter, reading Melancholy, which... As a as a music guy, I thought Siamese Dream was the album from Smashing Pumpkins, and I thought Melancholy was you know it was bloated. It was it's actually it's their Tusk. It's two albums. Didn't really need to be two. He just wanted to try to go even bigger than the really successful one, and bigger isn't always better. It's exactly what Guns N' Roses did with the Use Your Illusions. Um, and it's just funny to be there on the ground floor when they're you know there's a they, we we forget about the haters in in the long run is basically what happens if something flies. And it's successful. We just assume that something that was legendary was received as if it was sent from on high, like Moses receiving stone tablets when it came out. And like, no, it's it's actually kind of funny. Well, I did that whole episode, right, with McGrath about the Beatles albums being like a piece of shit in the eyes of Rolling Stone magazine. So anyway, we got um, Circus Magazine, November 1979, Cheap Trick on the cover. They're releasing Dream Police. It's the follow up. They're trying to Make it stick and be more than just the I want you to want I want you to want me band from Budokan. Um and on the bottom, this is great. Talking heads. They look all American, but they sing about war, drugs, and psycho killers. So um clearly a world that has no concept yet of alternative music. Um that's pretty much all they could say is like these guys might be um these guys might be trouble. <laughs> Because I don't, guys, they literally don't have one song about their dick. I don't know about you, but I'm a little bit scared. So we get into this circus magazine. We got an ad there for Demarzio Humbuckers. That's a guitar pickup. Hell yeah, you can't rock without some humbuckers. And then uh, there's an ad for the GM. I don't know if you know this. Makes the only vertical radio for the Citation. Was the Citation? Oh yeah, yeah, 1980 Chevy Citation. So. I mean, you know, everybody's got a 1980 Chevy Citation, right? And can we all agree that fucking horizontal radios are not cutting it? Let's let's get this some bitch in there. There's an entire ad for this, and this is something I noticed with all the ads in this particular magazine because I don't I guess Matt didn't have Matt ads. God, I'll give him credit for that. Um, God, there's a lot of words in ads. They really 
assumed, and they may well have been right at the time, that people were going to read six paragraphs about why they needed a car stereo that was vertical, not horizontal. Obviously begs the question, how the fuck does it fit in the, the car slot? Because you would pretty much need to redesign the entire dash, unless I'm missing something here. There's a lot of words for why you need to buy this particular radio. Um, there's a lot of words a page or two later for why you need to buy what is... Uh, oh, fuck, who cares? Um, okay, this is, this is amazing. Um, here is a full-page ad for the forthcoming motion picture event. Opens everywhere Friday, December 14th. Steve Martin in The Jerk. This absolutely... Oh, shit, did I rip it? Oh, man, I think that may have been worth something. Oh, well. It blew my mind when I saw that. This is what I love. I love history. I love historical artifacts. I love stuff that takes you back to the actual time. There was a time when whoever the fuck put out The Jerk was just like, here's this thing. We got this wacky guy. Boy, he's young, but he's gray. He's holding a chair and a paddleboard. Put it out there. Let's see if the kids respond to this thing. And, you know, there was a period of time where that was in play, where the jerk would maybe wasn't going to be successful. This is just another movie. How many fucking movies are being advertised right now that will be completely forgotten? There it was before it even happened. Oh, there's the, the ad that I was thinking of. JBL speakers lay it all on the line. Hey, listen, kids. The next time you are recording an album in um, a major recording studio... You don't want your studio monitors to be second best. And that's why you want to go with the pros. That's why, I mean, it's, it's a no-brainer. You're kind of a dick if you don't buy these, uh, these JBL studio monitors. Next page in Circus Magazine is a very long article, Choosing the Right Microphone by Len Feldman. That one was hot. That one was controversial. Uh, we don't have time to get into that. I'm into the front pages here. There is a full-page picture of Lonnie Anderson, who at this point is a big star in uh, on WKRP. She is there to defend her right to jiggle. What's salacious about jiggling, asks Lonnie Anderson. Whoever said that girls don't have breasts and nipples? Women aren't Barbie dolls. So a lot of people at the time might have thought that Lonnie Anderson was just this bimbo who didn't have a brain. But she had a lot to say about being a bimbo. Uh, there's another another guy from WKRP. Abba met President Jimmy Carter's kid. This is great. Joe Perry leaves Aerosmith. Gets like three paragraphs. And it just goes to show you it was a different time. They could control information and so they did. Joe just uh, wasn't feeling the artistic direction of Aerosmith anymore, and so everybody's great friends. Aerosmith's going to keep rocking, and he'll be there in the front row, and he's going to go do his own thing, and there's just no mention whatsoever. Sorry, Seltzer. That at this period of time, both Joe Perry and Steven Tyler were on so much heroin that they basically had like 50 hypodermic needles hanging out of them at all time. They looked like pinhead, and that had like heroin pinhead. And that wasn't the reason. Joe was just, uh, Joe was looking for something a little bit more blues-based than Steve, I guess. So Joe Perry's out, and uh, let's see. They have, in Circus Magazine, a national magazine, as far as I know, I know it was, in 1979 TV listings. Just in case you were wondering, they will be airing um, Uncle Joe Shannon's jazz show 
um, at uh, at 8 p.m. on Wednesday. So make a note of that. Mayflower, The Pilgrim's Adventure. There's a lot of TV listings. There's a, Oh, this is when All Quiet on the Western Front is airing. That's cool. That was like a 50-year-old movie even then. Here's another ad for microphones. How many people... Like, did they do any research back then to actually see if the advertising that they were doing was effective in any way, shape, or form? I kind of feel like the business, there was, like, so much fat involved. The music industry was just signing people left and right. They didn't care. They were cost them 20 cents to make a record. They charge people 10 bucks for it. If, you know, if the BG sold 70 million of one of them, they could care less. They could give all their friends record deals and they could give them all a million bucks each. And it didn't matter. Everybody still made money and there was still plenty of blow to go around. And I feel like it may have been the same thing where like there were three microphone companies. And so when people needed microphones, it was like going to be A, B or C, but what are they going to do? Not advertise. And like the guy who had the advertising budget from sure did coke with the guy who edited Circus Magazine or the other way around, and they're like, sure, fine, fucking put the ad in there. Let's do 20 paragraphs for a bunch of eight-year-olds who can't even, like, who who couldn't possibly afford, uh, they can't afford toys, they can't afford snacks, but yeah, they really care about the absolute premium in uh, audio fidelity. Bette Midler's in there talking about The Rose. That was that movie that they made about, uh, Janis Joplin. That they couldn't, I guess they didn't want to pay for it or couldn't, so they said it wasn't about Janis Joplin, but it is about Janis Joplin. Uh, Cheap Trick is in here talking about the Dream Police album. Here is, here's one of the things I found very remarkable about this all-in-all very remarkable magazine. There's a centerfold poster of Angus Young, and then there's a thing, dude, it's nuts. Because it's 1979. It's November of 1979. I should have looked this up before I started blabbering on here. But Bon Scott's the singer of ACDC, man. And, hey, man, here's their new album, and those guys kick a lot of ass, and those are some juicy riffs, and those guys have fat bulges in their blue jeans, and look out, America, here here comes these these guys from down under to rock your fucking world. And it's like, how long after this did... Somebody write to me and, and tell me, in case I forget to look it up, how long after this did Bon Scott die? I think, because isn't Back in Black, like, 1980? Is it 81 at the absolute latest? This is the very, very end of 1979. This is the end of the 70s, and nobody who's writing this or reading this or giving the interview to Circus Magazine has any idea that something so historic is like days, weeks, months away from happening. Also, they mentioned in this that Angus Young, that they're, I should have also looked this up, Angus Young uh, is, uh, uh, they're really, ACDC's releasing like their uh, fifth album, and they're saying he's like 20. Is that true? Was Angus Young like 12 years old when ACDC started making albums? Is that Was that a thing everybody else knew or was that a thing that nobody talks about? Because I feel like that's a pretty noteworthy part of his biography. I felt like he was an old man. It would have been, anybody else would have looked so ridiculous they would have had to have stopped running around in the schoolboy outfit by the time I became aware of ACDC, which is like 86, 87, Thunderstruck's like 88, 89. Turns out he may have only been like 24 years old back then. I don't, I didn't know that. Most of the things that are in this Circus Magazine from 1979, I think, are probably true. That was one thing where I was like, well, that's easily verifiable, but, um, but, uh, uh, uh it, it, it just seems untrue to me. There was something else. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit if I can find it that I have never heard before that I found very weird. And I think you will agree is, is fairly disturbing 
um, and I've tried Googling it, and I find absolutely nothing on it. There's a section in the back of the circus magazine called This Week. Hey, look, Fleetwood Mac got their star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Oh, and look at this. Before Judas Priest were big, their singer, Rob Halford, made a porno. And okay, it's kind of interesting because, as we all know, he was a closeted gay man at the time, and he is an out gay man, gay man now. And this article has um, quotes with him saying that he uh, he did the film 10 years before this article came out, before Judas Priest. He did it for 50 quid. At the time, I was out of work and practically destitute. Um, the name of this porno movie in which Rob Halford is said to appear is Teenage Rape. And I'm sorry, I know you didn't, I should have, did it like a trigger warning. I know you didn't see that coming. This seems noteworthy. I Googled, I didn't feel good about it, but I, I, I Googled those, that phrase in quotes next to his name and absolutely nothing comes up. Actually, something does come up about him having a past in porn. Um, it says that before they were famous, he worked at a porn theater and there's jokes in this very old article I'm reading online about him, you know, being the mop guy and ha ha ha. But nothing about him having acted into porn and certainly nothing about about uh, that particular film. And boy, out of everything that I have looked at from the year 1979, that one really did stand out to me as the one of like, I guess that was okay at the time. And uh, obviously, most definitely would not be now. There's, uh, we'll move on from that. There's an article in here about Tim Curry, you know, the Rocky Horror Picture Show guy. Now, I didn't know. Did everybody know that Tim Curry had a music career? And, And it was one of these things where... He just did the acting thing for fun, like on the side. It just kind of took off. And hey, man, you know, they asked me to be in a movie, so I did it. But music's my real passion. I didn't know that about him. I just know him as, you know, he's a fun guy. He's Rocky Horror Picture Show, which I've never actually seen. And he's the TV version of It, which I've never actually seen. I can't reach. I'm going to put on music from Tim Curry. Was This is what he was really passionate about. Hold on. Stay right there. Oh, that's loud. This is like an early music video when it's actually like a short film. It actually says in the beginning, Tim Curry in Paradise Garage. Here he comes, getting out of a taxi. I went down to Paradise Garage and took my place in line. The cashier said, are you all right? I said, I'm feeling fine. I'm a stranger to Nirvana. I don't box outside my way. When I stepped out of the taxi, I did not anticipate this feeling. Oh, excuse me, sir. Oh, no, after you. Ah, hell yeah. Tim Curry. That's, you know, you, you guys enjoy the hell out of Rocky Horror Picture Show and It and whatever else he's done, but... That's what that guy wants to be remembered for, so have a little respect. I did not recall, I did not know that there was ever a movement in rock and roll known as Perm Wave. Um, that was it's funny to uh to uh buy to to, to two thousand nineteen eyes, two thousand nineteen standards to write an article talking about look out bros, these girls know how to rock pretty hard too. That's an article about I've never heard of Ellen Foley, Jenya Raven. I'm basically familiar with i think she'd been an old punk lady and uh pat benatar and uh the name of the movement that this thing was getting behind was uh was perm wave here's the article about talking heads 
um, somebody probably gave Circus Magazine cocaine to write about them because the person, David Frick, clearly has no idea. He's like, so you guys, um, what kind of TVs do you like throwing outside of your hotel windows? And David Burns like, I like chamomile tea. And Frick's just like, okay, this is a bummer. Uh, this it, thanks, and that's the whole interview with um with the talking heads. I don't know that this really was a valuable promotional effort for them. This article in Circus Magazine from 1979, but luckily, uh, I think they were able to have some success without the backing of uh of the magazine. We're almost done here. Sniff in the Tears is a band I've never heard of, and their headline on their little blurb article is "We're not dire straits." So. Apparently that was that was the knock on sniffing the tears. Let's I got I got some sniffing the tears here. Let's see about that. Hold on. Hold on. All right, here we go. No, that's what is that? Wait, what the fuck? Did they just put audio for a different song to this? What is that? Is that Hen- I don't know. Like I, I don't know classic rock. Is that Hendrix? What the? Oh, this is just their hit. Oh, this song's good. Yeah, these guys aren't dire straits. Does it sound exactly like another thing? Yeah, that thing. Oh, that's their thing. Oh, this is a fucking classic. Sniffing the tears kick ass, dude. Yeah, you guys aren't dire straits at all. Um, they're just they, they were very boring and uh very pasty to look at, and I think that um Yeah, both the lead singer and Mark Knopfler look like guys who would probably be renting a room in a basement. Um so I could I could think that was it. But no way that oh driver's seat. I'm gonna start listening to that song. Um there's cartoons. Comics, rather, in uh, Circus Magazine. There's uh, Dick Tracy caught a punker, a punk rocker, and that was newsworthy to them. There's classified ads in here. There's people out there in case you need somebody to fix your um, to fix your um, your eight track tapes. There was a guy who would who would do that for you. There's um, there's uh, let's get naked T-shirts could be had. In uh, yellow, blue, and black. You can get your Death to Disco bumper stickers. Also, Disco Sucks. Also, Long Live Rock and Roll. You know it. I know it. We rule. They're fools. Send me a buck for one or three, uh, three, all three for two bucks, too. It's just this guy in Pennsylvania. And he had an ad in uh, Circus Magazine for that. He had classifieds. This is so fucking charming. There's health and sex advice in the back called Into Your Head from one Dr. Vincent Bryan. And again, and I don't actually fault them for this one, I strongly doubt that anybody was like, I have nowhere else to turn. Let me write to Circus Magazine for, I don't know. It was such a, like a closed culture. If you're, if you're, you know, it's like I was saying earlier about Mad Magazine. If you lived in this little world that was really repressed and your family couldn't talk about stuff, maybe you did have nowhere to turn but Circus Magazine. Um, 
Anyway, there's this art. There's there's all these questions of, hey, so I'm seeing this girl and I think she likes me, but I don't know if she likes me. And you know the usual shit. And there's this one basically saying, and this is kind of heartbreaking. I've never hear, heard you deal with this kind of problem before. It's as personal as you can get. Um, I'm 15. How do you know when you've completely reached puberty? Um, I've been embarrassed at the showers in the showers at school by my problem, and a day hasn't passed when I haven't thought about this. I swear to God, this may have been the most valuable thing Circus Magazine was doing, was making up this letter and writing it to themselves every single month just to go, hey, dude, don't worry about it. Everybody, I mean, I'm sure there's a couple weirdos out there, but everybody hits puberty sooner or later. Just try to take quick showers and keep on rocking, buddy, and this too shall pass. Uh, There's a songwriting contest. You can get... Photo IDs, there's there's a whole page of where you can get kick-ass fake IDs. Send 25 cents? What sort of business model is that? Um, <clears throat> we get uh, Fleetwood Mac, as I mentioned, have put out their Tusk album to a lukewarm review. Apparently the Sticks' uh, ninth LP was good. I did not realize, I did put together an episode with Mark McGrath that um, of, of artists who dabbled in disco, although they're not mostly identified with disco. I try to do homework for that, but I mean, shit, you know, you can't find all the answers. I'm not like a walking music encyclopedia. I didn't know Elton John tried disco or that Circus Magazine fucking hated it. Here's a little taste of... Off of the Victim of Love album. They got... uh... I mean, I think you got the idea. The Wizard of Id is in here. There's more uh, comics at the back. Once again, you go, maybe I was a kid. Maybe I just didn't get it. No, do you know what? In case you were wondering, The Wizard of Id never was always terrible. That's the one with like the medieval king guy. Doonesbury? Come at me. Nonsensical. Just flat out bad. I don't get it. I didn't get it then. I don't get it now. I'm sure it was very important and meaningful. You, sir, are no... uh or no far side. Here's another thing in the back pages from Lou O'Neill Jr. about how Joe Perry has left Aerosmith once again. Musical differences, amicable. Yeah, those guys definitely did not totally fucking hate each other. Uh, there's a ticket giveaway. I mean, rather a t-shirt giveaway. Paul McCartney t-shirt. This is charming. It's a Wings t-shirt. And they said, hey, so we got our intern who doesn't wear a bra to put this t-shirt on and um, take a picture of her. Last month we fucked up and just did the close-up of her face and you couldn't see the shirt. So we're just running that back. Here's what that actual shirt looks like. So you can win that. That's exciting. People love wings. And uh, and then finally, we've come to the end of the, the rainbow here on the show. Thank you to anybody who might still be listening. Um, was this was this worth doing? I, I honestly have no idea. We'll post this up. You guys can tell me what you think. Nobody, nobody has to listen to this. Um, finally, the back cover of the November 1979 cover of, uh, of, of issue of Circus Magazine. I mentioned this when Gareth Reynolds was in, but I was wrong. I thought it was from the early 80s. That's another. I bought a lot of these. This is from the end of 1979. The Village People, their new double album, Live and Sleazy, featuring YMCA and the Navy Macho Man, and uh, the new hit, Ready for the 80s. 
Village people may have been ready for the 80s. The 80s, of course, were not. I got to go. Thank you, everybody. Once again, support people who come on this show. Let them know that you like hearing them here and uh, go and support their stuff, too. And um, I am, of course, at Tully on Twitter, at Tullywood on Instagram. Rate, review, subscribe to the pod next week. Hopefully, I'll have a guest. I'll see you then.